You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation, and today I am very excited to welcome back to the podcast our most popular guest of all time, Eric McGracken. Eric, how are you? Kyla, I'm good. I'm happy to be here as the grumpy middle-aged man to (laughs) rant about whatever buttons you push on me today. Well, we always have to have a grumpy middle-aged man component in every podcast, so. Good, good, good. Um, I wanted you back because this week was the first week of the mandate of ICBC's new fairness commissioner starting, and we're also, I guess, a little over a month into the new and exciting world of no fault, um, and I wanted to get your your take on these things. So you and I were talking last night over Twitter about the fairness commissioner and their terms of reference. Uh, what are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, so so I'll repeat to the public at large what I first told you on Twitter, which is I didn't even bother looking it up because my speculation, my my cynical guess is it's an entirely useless position. And you were nice enough to send me the terms of reference, which confirmed my cynical views. I think um, the fairness commissioner here, let me just read this because this is my favorite part. This is This is the press release telling us who the fairness commissioner is. Now, I don't know this man, Mr. Peter Burns QC, and I don't have a single personal thing to say about him. Uh, I think you could put a toaster in the position and you're going to get the same results because this is what the fairness commissioner apparently is going to do. Quote, uh, he is going to decide whether you've been treated fairly. End quote. That's it. Hey, uh, I'm getting... uh, really bad treatment by ICBC and you go to the fairness commissioner and he could do whatever he's going to do and he's going to say oh that seems fair or he's going to say that seems unfair and that's really the end of it right it's not <laughs> it's not a position that fixes people's problems and when you go to the terms of reference it becomes abundantly clear what can this man do and not do well he can't Get involved if you have a complaint about an ICBC employee or a broker from ICBC. He can't get involved if ICBC is not offering you a fair settlement. He can't get involved if ICBC is deciding fault for a crash in an unfair way. He can't get involved when it comes to violation tickets. And of course, that makes sense. ICBC has nothing to do with the tickets. He can't get involved if the matter's in front of a court or in front of the civil resolution tribunal, or if your matter is going to arbitration, or if your, your complaint has to do with how you're being treated in litigation by ICBC, he can't get involved if you're unhappy with how ICBC's lawyers are treating you. Uh, he can't get involved if you're being discriminated against. If ICBC is engaged in some sort of horrendous activity like racism, can't get involved in that. All he can do is point you in the right direction to say, well, maybe you can go to court. Maybe you can go to arbitration. Or maybe you can go to the civil rights tribunal. Or maybe you're being treated fairly. Or maybe ICBC's manager should look at this. So So I can't think 
of a position that has a lot less value. I don't know how much of rate payers' money is going to pay for somebody to do this, but this position won't resolve anybody's disputes in a meaningful way. And if, if not ranting enough uh, here, um, I say this, what's fair is going to court. If you're not being treated fairly and you want to remedy the problem, what's been fair for many years is to take the matter to court or to even start that process. And I found that very quickly would make ICBC smart enough. If they're being unfair to somebody and you start litigation or even threaten litigation, they would take a very sober look at things and decide whether their position is warranted. And if not, they would quickly come around and do what's right. And if they stick with doing what's wrong all the way through litigation, they could get hammered hard for taking that position. This Fairness Commission that, you know, it, it doesn't even replace it. Uh, civil Resolution Tribunal replaces going forward. But the Fairness Commission, I don't even know what it offers. I think it's nothing more than a feel-good political position where somebody could be a liaison to maybe put some fires out before they load. But the Fairness Commission, I haven't referred a client to them. I can't imagine any client benefiting from going to the Fairness Commissioner. So that's, that's what I think. So if the Fairness Commissioner makes a determination that you were treated unfairly, and then obviously they can't get involved and make that determination if your case is involved in litigation or before the Civil Resolution Tribunal or going to arbitration, but could the Fairness Commissioner's decision about your treatment ever come up as part of the litigation? Like, could it could it be used to increase a settlement or anything like that down the road? She's Kyla, you're always clever because you're two steps ahead and you ask the right questions. So I think I think if you were going to get into something like bad faith damages, and, and I have to actually plead ignorance on one point, under the new no-fault scheme, I don't know if you can sue ICBC for no uh, or bad faith damages. It's something that's on my research list to do. But I think your observation is a very, very valid one, which is if you go to the Fairness Commissioner, they say you're being treated unfairly, they tell ICBC to treat you fairly, ICBC continues to not follow that advice. The commission or the commissioner is completely toothless. He, he can't force ICBC to do anything. But if ICBC then doubles down and continues to treat you unfairly, perhaps you could put that before the court in a bad faith action, assuming that right still exists, which is I need to research. Uh, but, but if it does, you could that'd be the kind of thing I would advocate should lead to stronger damages, um, bad faith damages, aggravated damages, those kinds of things. But other than that, there's not going to be any kind of instant remedy by going to this commissioner. When, when you look at the terms of reference and you look at what they can't do, and I just read that laundry list, uh, your audience, what can they do? Assuming it's in the very narrow scope of things that are within this commissioner's jurisdiction, all that he can do is make recommendations. Like here, I'm just gonna quickly go through this list. So the commissioner can refer the matter to the appropriate department in ICBC. Okay, so he could pass the buck to somebody. He could recommend that ICBC's manager get involved. He could recommend that a customer relations representative from ICBC get involved. Again, that's a whole lot of nothing. 
he can recommend that the matter go to mediation or arbitration. So that's not mediating or arbitrating. He's saying, hey, go to somebody else. He could uh, conduct an investigation. Well, that's great. He can do a whole bunch of things that don't involve a final adjudication. So he can't fix anybody's problem. He just make recommendations that aren't binding on you, the customer, and that aren't binding on ICBC, the entity that presumably is treating you unfairly. So, and it, it just seems like it's a whole lot of nothing. Wow. Well, so what in, in what circumstance would going to the Fairness Commissioner be to anybody's advantage? Can you see any advantage to it? I can't think of one off the top of my head. And I don't want to be so cynical to say never, ever, ever again. Maybe maybe if I've got an employee that's doing a really bad job at ICDs here, maybe a policy is being applied in a serial way unfairly where enough members of the public complain about it or it's becoming a bit of a political problem. Maybe the commissioner will make recommendations and ICBC will fix some serial problems uh, that are gonna run through the corporation. There might, be, there might be some examples over the years, but I can't think of a one-off example where a British Columbian is being treated poorly. Uh, gonna get the remedy they seek by going to this commissioner because it's right in the terms of reference. They, the commissioner basically can't fix almost all the types of problems people are going to complain about. And when it is within that very narrow uh, scope where they do have jurisdiction, if you want to use that word, can't give a binding decision. So I don't really see the value. It, it almost reminds me of something you're familiar with, which is the police complaint process. I don't know how many times you've recommended a client to go there, but I can't imagine it's very many because you're not going to get a result that would be satisfactory for well, yeah, you, can't, you, you mean you the system. You don't get any compensation. You just get a finding that the officer did something wrong and maybe that results in an officer getting disciplined, but usually it's it's just like, yeah, it's a long process that that essentially just gets a pyrrhic victory for people. Do you think there is any value though in having this both in dealing with, because I, I mean, I hear from people and I don't even practice in this area, um, their frustrations with how they feel that they were treated unfairly. Do you think that there is any sort of intrinsic value in having a forum where people can just feel like they were heard even if there isn't any teeth to it? Yeah, I, you know, I can't speak for everybody. And, and certainly there's going to be people out there that, that enjoy that process, simply having somewhere where they can vent, having somebody independent and neutral hear their complaints, uh, vindicating them, telling them that they, in fact, were treated unfairly. Some people might have or might see value in that. You know, it's the old uh, adage, give a man a hammer and, and every problem's a nail. So yeah. I, I view everything through a legal lens, right? And and from where I'm sitting, the question is where you're being treated, I, I hate even using the word unfairly, where you're being treated legally incorrectly. I'm looking for a remedy with, with teeth, something that's gonna fix the problem. And this does not fix that problem. But if you view this from another lens, and, and you know that's why discussing this is good, maybe I'll soften up my my, my, my ranting here, maybe some people simply by being heard by somebody, not an ICBC employee, confirming that they got a raw deal, maybe that'll 
make things easier for people. I'm not wired that way. That wouldn't, you know, I'm disabled and I'm off work and I can't make ends meet and I can't pay my mortgage and ICBC is not honoring the disability benefit that I've paid money to be uh, entitled to. I, I wouldn't see a lot of value waiting a month or two from a decision from a fairness commissioner to say that was unfair. I'd say, hey, where are my contractual benefits? And I'd want that kind of a remedy. But but if some folks are um, feeling better by having somebody confirm they were treated unfairly, then, then good for them. And, and I suppose some people will see value in that. I, I foresee that there's going to be a problem because I, I know that, you know, you and I both know that if we were going to be complaining to the fairness commissioner about something, we would be looking at the terms of reference and the scope of their authority and their power and, you know, identifying what types of unfairness they actually have the power to consider. But I mean, fairness, as you know, uh, and you, you said you look at everything through a legal lens, in the legal context, that term fairness is particularly loaded, especially when dealing with something like the Civil Resolution Tribunal, where there's an obligation to give procedural fairness. Um, I foresee, and I want to get your take on this, that there's going to be a lot of complaints made about issues that are in fact issues related to the procedural fairness of something before the civil resolution tribunal. And we're gonna see more resources spent at the fairness commissioner's office in just sending out letters being like, this isn't within the jurisdiction of our mandate. I think that's exactly the letter that almost everybody who complains to the fairness commissioner is going to get. They're gonna complain that this is unfair, ICBC took too long, they denied this, they denied that. They're asking me to produce things that they're not entitled to, whatever the complaint is gonna be. And I think the response in nine out of 10 of those is gonna be, this is outside the scope of our office. And, and guess what? People that are being treated unfairly are gonna think they're being treated more unfairly by having a fairness commissioner not take their complaint seriously. Um, a lot of British Columbians, and, and this will maybe segue into um, the other thing you want to talk about, which is the first month of no fault. A lot of British Columbians, day by day by day, are waking up to the reality of no fault right now. They're learning that no fault is not what was sold to them by very clever marketing campaign. The marketing campaign said people are getting enhanced care. They're getting increased benefits. They're getting all sorts of good stuff. More stuff costs less. Great deal. Um, <laughs> then people get in a crash. And they find out that what they're getting is almost nothing. The enhanced care is enhanced only on paper. But in reality, almost nobody gets more. Almost every crash victim gets a lot less. And I'm making calls day by day by day, breaking very ugly news to people. And there's a lot of upset British Columbians finding out what no fault means. It means you can't sue the texting driver that smashed into you and ruined your car or broke your leg or sprained your neck or gave you a concussion. Yeah. Can't get money for pain and suffering from ICBC for those injuries. When you're disabled, first you have to go to your private extended healthcare benefits. First, you have to go to medical EI. First, you have to go and use that sick bank you've been building up at work for years and years in case something bad happened before ICBC is paying you anything. 
you have to jump through a lot of hoops to get ICBC to approve various therapies. They have a lot of discretion about what therapies they're going to let you have and not have. They have a cap on how much they're going to cover for these various therapies. Have a healthcare practitioner that's fixing your problems, but it's outside of the scope of ICBC's meet chart policies, it's not going to be covered. If it's a therapy that's covered under ICBC's chart, but the cost of this practitioner is greater, it's not going to be covered. You have to eat all of those things yourself. And when I break this news to people, they can't believe it. They, they simply can't believe that it applies to them when they're not at fault. And I don't know what to tell them other than write your MLA a letter because it does apply to you. You are being shortchanged. There is no quick fix to this problem. And the only thing, because nobody cares about, uh, you know, it's academic, um, no fault. Your rates are gonna be a little bit cheaper. If you're in a crash, um, I hope you're not injured because if you are, you're in for a rude awakening as to how many of your rights were taken away. Most people don't think about that. They're just happy to have the lower rates. But when the crash happens to them, it's home. And that's when people are upset. So the average of numbers are more, more folks are happy with cheaper rates than the really bad news of when the crash happens to them. But when the crash happens to them, they are exponentially more pissed off than any joy they had by saving 50 bucks on their car insurance when they realize they might be out tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars for the rest of your life. Um, and every day, British Columbians are upset about this news. And every day, I think MLAs are getting letters saying, what the hell did you do throwing my rights away to save ICBC some money and to have some you know, politically friendly sound bites out there about enhanced care. But it only hits home when it happens to you. And what I'm, what I'm recommending to people, it's the only constructive thing I can tell people, legal remedies are gone is write your MLA a letter because it's not gonna fix your problem. But maybe if you have a crash in the future or if your son or daughter or spouse or friend or neighbor have a crash in the future and they're harmed, maybe they'll have more rights if the government decides to give those back. But right now, it's sort of rude awakening day after day for a lot of British Columbians. So there's my, there's my fairness rent. Well, let me ask you this. I, I was under the impression, and maybe I'm wrong, um, that the no-fault system uh, doesn't apply in circumstances where the other driver was impaired by alcohol or drugs. Is that accurate? Sort of, kind of. Uh, when the other driver is convicted oh. of a criminal driving offense, you can sue them. Kyla, how many impaired drivers on the roads convicted of a criminal driving offense? <laughs> Not that many, because they're coming. Not that many. <laughs> Kyla, do police have to show up after a car crash these days? Nope. No. So you have a crash. Cops don't even have to show up. But let's assume they show up. Let's assume that there's indicia of impairment. Do they have to charge the person criminally? No, most of the time they end up giving them a 90-day immediate roadside prohibition. Sure do. And, and you know that world very well. Uh, so how many people that are drunk are charged? Almost nobody. When they're charged, they're not always convicted, and I'm not going to get into uh, why that always is. But 
chances are if you're hit by a drunk driver, you can't sue them. Now, the government's going to have sound bites out there saying, hey, you know, you could sue impaired drivers. Sometimes in the rarest of rarest of rarest circumstances where the cops show up, despite the law saying the cops don't have to show up, where they decide to use the criminal code instead of the faster administrative process where authorities get to take a whole lot of shortcuts, the Crown Council decides to approve those charges and then where a conviction is secured, and then you could sue. But it's like that man whose story was in the North Shore News, he can't sue. He found out the hard way that when he's run over on the sidewalk by somebody who maybe was impaired, and we don't know if they were or weren't, but the situation of impairment was reported, can you sue? No, you're stuck with no fault. And uh, dangerous driving under the criminal code, how often do you see one of those convictions? You could probably count them on one hand in British Columbia in any given year, wouldn't you agree? Well, I mean, excluding discharges, yes. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah and, and so it, it just doesn't happen. So, so victims of really egregious driving, even most of them have no rights under no fault. They get the exact same rights a bad driver gets like like if you're texting and you blow a stop sign and you run down a family of four in a minivan you get the same benefits as they do following that crash it's identical that's no fault so I, how how would it work then though because if you're injured in an accident and the other driver's accused of being impaired you know as as I know quite well, you know, it's going to be six months from when they were, uh, when they were arrested before they have their first court appearance. And then there's going to be from there, you know, another six to 12 months before uh, they end up having their trial and they might not be convicted until that two year limitation period has run out. Have they adjusted the limitation period to sue that driver based on the date of conviction? Yeah, uh, you, you always ask the hard questions. Yeah. I, uh, yes. I don't, I don't know the answer there, but, but you're right. Uh, the criminal process might drag out longer than the typical limitation period. And if you're, if you're injured, and you know that the other party, the at fault party, is being charged criminally, talk to a lawyer, find out the best way to preserve your rights because you want to uh, find out that you might have been able to waited too long so definitely with a lawyer if that's the situation wow. you're facing okay well this is all very dreary and gloomy and and awful i'm is there is there any silver lining to any of this that you can see yeah your insurance is like 60 bucks less when you renew it um, oh, well so, so insurance is great when it's cheap mm -hmm. um but insurance is better when you need it, when it actually covers your losses. And that's, that's what folks have lost. No, there's, there's no silver lining. Um, you know, again, I, I, I come at this from, um, from an impacted position. I, I've represented thousands of injured British Columbians. I continue to represent, can't count them, but many injured British Columbians before their rights were taken away. And I'm gonna continue to represent a lot of injured British Columbians outside of the motor vehicle collision uh, claim, but tort rights are better than no tort rights. I know that full well. There's no, there's no no fault insurance system that replaces what common law tort rights give individuals. And I wish there was a silver lining. But I hope, I hope enough British Columbians are upset about this, and that the government know they're upset about this. That this is a short term bad chapter in BC's history, and that rights are given back. But, but otherwise, 
you know, like, but, you know, I wrote an article. It is probably the last one up on my blog because after about five days of no fault, they got almost burned out of delivering and used to people. So I put an article up there saying, look, this is what it is. Like, I don't want to be the bad guy telling you your rights are gone. Your rights are gone. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a quick link and here's how you contact your MLA. And I, I'm not giving people a form letter, just tell your real story. I don't want some lawyer's form letter going to MLAs when, when you're injured and you're, you find out just how ugly of a system you're facing. Tell your MLAs why that's not fair and tell them what you think about it. And maybe they're going to listen to it. Maybe they won't. But people should let their stories be told. Wow. Okay. Well, if people want to take up the fight against this and want some recommendations for for how to contact their MLA or what they can do to fight no fault and to try and get their rights back. Um, or if they've been injured by somebody who is convicted of drunk driving uh, or have any questions for you about this, how can they reach you, Eric? Yeah, so um, just go to my website, bcinjurylaw.com. Just Google it because I've got a bunch of hyphens in there. You'll find uh, my website. And um, if you want to contact your MLA on May 26th, you'll find an article called British Columbians Learning the Reality of No Fault One Crash at a Time. At the bottom there, I've got a quick link for you to find who your MLA is. I've got a quick link there for you to contact your MLA once you know who they are and you let them know um, you have a raw deal and, and let them know that you think right and what they can do about it mm-hmm. and uh yeah folks could reach out to me anytime i'm always happy to provide free consultations and point folks in the right direction even if you have a crash under the no fault scheme and your rights are taken away sometimes people just want to hear it from a lawyer before they understand that they're stuck with this new system so by all means if you're out there listening feel free to reach out to me well thank you so much for your time eric we always appreciate you uh coming on the podcast and sharing your insights and knowledge and hopefully there'll be some good decisions because i know there are court challenges to this in the future and we'll be able to deliver good news via the podcast to everybody and as always thank you so much for having me on kyla and now it's time for the ridiculous driver of the week which is ridiculous driver of the week of course as you know my favorite portion of this podcast and this ridiculous driver is actually somebody who was found not to be as ridiculous a driver as originally claimed so this was a woman who uh, was charged with uh, leading police on a chase on her electric mobility scooter Um, it was an elderly woman Uh, she was uh, tried um Uh, because she was heading home from karaoke on her scooter, uh, cited for operating her scooter on a sidewalk and a crosswalk and failing to wear a helmet. And while the police were trying to stop her, uh, she wouldn't stop. Um, The police officer told her that she could not continue down the road on her scooter without a helmet, and that if she didn't stop, she'd go to jail, which seems to me to just be absurd. Like the idea that you'd go to jail if you don't put a helmet on, that's that's nonsensical. Um, but she drove her scooter home anyway, and the officers just followed her in their police vehicles with lights and siren activated for two to three minutes. 
like low speed chase, which itself, this, this whole circumstance is completely ridiculous and would be enough to warrant being featured on this portion of the podcast. But when she was charged with this, um, and, uh, she was actually acquitted in court. Um, this happened June 9th in Oregon, and you can actually read the judgment online. Um, but essentially the reason that, uh, she was acquitted, uh, the, the judge said, uh, the actions of the state in this case from the police officer's decision to pursue defendant in a low speed chase for the $25 specific fine traffic violation of not wearing helmet to the prosecutor's decision to pursue a felony charge under those circumstances to the attorney general's office's decision to defend those decisions on appeal should not be ignored. And the court said that the gravity of the error and the ends of the justice move us to exercise our discretion to correct the error. And she was acquitted. So imagine this, this poor woman, the officers are like, you're going to go to jail if you don't put a helmet on. And she basically says, F you, and continues on her way, causes a low speed pursuit. The court says, should never have happened. They should never have pursued her. Just give her a $25 ticket and move on. And then the decision to prosecute the case, to take it to trial, where she was convicted, and then the attorney general to defend that on appeal. Like, where is the public interest test in the uh, in the administration of justice? It's absolutely ridiculous. Like, this ridiculous driving incident, which itself is ridiculous, led to a ridiculous trial and a ridiculous appeal that makes the police, the attorney general, and the prosecution all in Oregon look ridiculous. I just, I love this. I love the like layered levels of ridiculousness that, that happened in this case. And, um, it, it's also a message I think though, to, uh, prosecutors who fail to exercise, you know, their discretion in a smart way. Um, when, um, uh, when they're, they're facing a situation where there isn't really a significant, um, public interest in continuing to uh, into continuing to pursue a prosecution. I mean, the, the, uh, it's a message that you know driving offenses that are relatively minor should not be elevated to something that is so significant that it causes somebody to end up uh, getting these uh, getting these situations. And and I applaud this woman for appealing her uh, conviction and for securing the acquittal and calling out the absurdity of it while still driving her scooter on a sidewalk without a helmet in a ridiculous fashion. Congratulations. My hat's off to you, woman. And that's our podcast. So if you have any driving law related issues, feel free to reach out to us at uh, VancouverCriminalLaw.com or 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. 